0: Welcome to the Card Authority show. Once again, we're trying something a little bit new tonight. We are going live across Facebook for all our followers and fans. It's a little bit of new technology for us, so we'll see what happens. I think it's a good time to bring in my co-host as always. And welcome, AJ, technology. Let's, uh, Let's see how this goes. Live show, number one.
1: Good evening, AJ. This is the first ever attempt of the Card Authority going live and direct exclusively uh, to all the listeners and viewers out there. So uh, make sure you bear with us, guys, in case we do run into some technical difficulties.
0: Well, we should be okay. We ran a well a series of tests late last night and today, so fingers crossed. And um, look, obviously already some viewers are jumping in. And thank you very much for everyone that's sort of made some time tonight to watch us. As always, shoot some questions through. We will be covering those live when we do Mailbag. Um, And if there's other things you want to pop up or interact with us through the show, just post a message. Um, But for people watching this in replay, obviously, you can catch this on SoundCloud, YouTube, um, Apple Music, Apple Podcasts, whatever it is, Facebook, whatever. Let's get on to it. AJ, how's your week been? Made
1: it has been another intense week uh intense week for trading cards um probably slowed down a little bit on my chase of particular cards and probably other people i imagine feel the same way as well Um, but for me i've actually spent a lot of time this week going in a lot of breaks and stuff a lot of a lot of late night action for me so that's been good fun and then i've just been waiting for the mail and stuff to turn up but in the broader sense of the hobby, it's uh, it's been really interesting because, as everyone knows, we're going through a, a time period of evolution, we'll call it. It's really an evolution of what's going on in sports trading cards. And that is affecting us domestically in this market and especially with, uh, with AFL now. More, you know, NBA's had that spotlight of this booming marketplace and it's really come across into AFL the last few weeks. So uh, it's been an exciting week for me, yeah.
0: Yeah. And look, you know, obviously I'm in lots of breaks everywhere and I see you in all those breaks. So that's certainly selling it a little bit short that you've been involved in breaks. But um, yeah, look, it's been a, a fun week for me as well. Obviously the the logo hunt is becoming a little bit more challenging since I announced it to everybody, but it's still fun. And thank you to everyone that's still helping me out with logos. Um, but yeah, it's an it's an interesting time. And as with you, you mentioned too, I'm, I'm waiting for mail to arrive and um you know, getting some sets together and, you know, some nice pieces of the puzzle or soily falling together. So, um, look, Dominance has been fun, but you're right, the industry has been um, really interesting. And we touched on that a little bit last week that we thought they we were perhaps coming into a little bit of a flat spot. Um, how do you feel sort of a week later? Is that, a, has that improved or is that about the same?
1: So, uh, from memory, I said uh, I said about a week ago in episode five that I thought we were probably somewhere around the, anywhere between 5% and, uh, and 15% from the bottom of the market. Yes, thank you, AJ. I've just seen your comment, AJ Grimbs there. I have had a shave and it's a rarity, mate i have not uh, shaved with a razor very often in the last decade to be honest it's the second time I've done it in 7 years but uh, back back to the question at hand uh, at yes, hand Bodie. Uh, yes yes the logo hunt the logo hunt from Bodie that's right you're you're right on to AJ there um look with respect to the marketplace I thought we we still had about a week to go and a bit of a market drop to come through in that sort of 5% to 15% range I think and it's not on every card; it's on various particular type of cards, and especially the lower, the lower end, the lower end subsets, but also um, some of the, the lower collected teams on from the from the higher uh, case hits and things like that as well. Now, yep. my opinion is, and from the inf, you know the data I'm tracking and the analysis that I've been doing and what I've been experiencing and seeing is that we have seen that drop of between five and 15 percent over the last seven days. But I probably think we definitely hit a bottom probably about 24 to 36 hours ago. I feel we really hit the, the bottom of the market there and there's already a bounce starting to take place in certain areas. And I think people are starting, look, a lot of people have got sets done, but a lot of people have also started to realise, okay, the stock is now being opened. It's actually starting to dry up a bit now. Those number to 40 cards, number to 60 cards, are the,
0: the, the finite aspect of them is really starting to kick in. So yeah, that, that's where I'm at. Yeah. And I, I, certainly noticed too, and look, just so everyone knows I'm, I'm putting comments up on the screen, so we'll hopefully not, won't put Jenks off too much. Um, but I, I, certainly noticed that there seems to be a lot more selling of, for example, the, you know, the, the standard hollows, you know, people are putting them up, selling them for a couple of bucks each. I guess that's probably a sign of some people trying to get some money back as well as, They've got their sets, they've got all these loose cards from breaks or they've opened their boxes. Also, a lot of people that had ordered single boxes from Card Zone here in Melbourne, they seem to really start arriving this week. There was a whole series of posts that people had actually um, started to receive their cards, and I think some of those were now starting to get fed back on the market.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think we also said from the outset the expectation was it was never gonna be like Prestige where the product sells out quickly, but it all got busted so quickly and then it ended up on the market so quickly. We always thought the situation now was the market had evolved, it had matured, it had changed. And we, it wasn't just a collector base anymore or a pure collector base and a pure flipper base of people there. There's very much speculators, longer term investors, and also obviously the breaks are a really big thing now as well. So as a result of that, we, we didn't see the frequency of stock being opened and therefore we didn't see the frequency of stock being dumped onto the market. The direct result was a lot of the cards opened in a much higher price bracket and they held up in that price bracket for longer and also the dip in price which is always going to happen it's just it's cyclical how that works and it's always going to happen but that that drop off and that dip wasn't to the same extent of what what we've seen previously and I think a lot of people have come to that realization especially a lot of the collectors who have been around for a while they thought that after seven days they would see an expected 50 percent drop in price that drop in price hasn't materialized this time. And that's why we reached a bottom and we're starting to bounce off that bottom because the collectors realize, okay, it's probably actually not gonna get to that price level that's gonna drop so low. So I need to start finishing off my set now and buying the cards and therefore it's reducing that depth on the market. Um, with what you were saying about the financial side of things, it, it's absolutely right. And you know, for all the, all the guys out there, who, who are guys, girls, and everything else that are watching at the moment. I speak to a lot of people obviously throughout the day and throughout the week um, across the trading card networks, whether it be Facebook or, or otherwise and private conversations. And, you know, I'm very open and transparent with what my position is and what my thoughts are on the marketplace. And I've said like buyers fatigue will always kick in, especially when we've had so many releases in such a short period of time and people have spent a significant amount of money. Someone who would otherwise buy a box and buy into a couple of breaks has tried to get multiple boxes and has been going in breaks every two days. You know, people have been paying more money for the cards because the cards are higher priced. But it's also relative because it means they've moved their other cards that they didn't need on at a higher price as well. So the rebenchmarking of price is one thing, but we're definitely we, we hit a point. You get to a point where. People need to sell off product in order to keep their chase going and their collection going as well. Um, and traditionally, people will move to the lower end stuff first because you find it more difficult to part with the higher end. And also the higher end gives you, gives you more, more trade inventory, basically, more, more stuff in that war chest that if the card you want comes out and it's not buyable, at least you may have something to be able to work in with the trade there. So no no doubt about it, the financial fatigue started to kick in. I think I said it last week, we we were feeling that pinch around Monday to Wednesday last week, it would come back in over the weekend, it came back, it did come back, like the flow of people and and expenditure across the board definitely came back in, but then it definitely started to slow again the last few days. And to be honest, I thought it would really pick up yesterday and even on Wednesday night and it didn't. I felt like last night about 8pm something happened. And maybe that's just because I'm a maniac and I'm in breaks all night as well. But I definitely felt like, I felt like the, break. you know, a good indication is what's going on with breaks. Basically. I felt like last night breaks were selling at a faster pace after 8 PM than they did all day throughout the day yesterday. And then they were still selling at 11 PM and midnight last night. Um, So yeah, massive shout out to everyone that I get to, uh, hang out with on the on the chat forums on uh on, on, on planet on planet of the breaks late at night on uh a big shout out to dom nam good i've uh, i've been over on bam late at, late there as well and uh, the fast breaks boys they occasionally do some late night specials too and yeah, I, I, I love the banter i love hanging out with all the people in uh in the live stream but i definitely noticed money started coming back in people started spending again late last night i think today There's probably been more cards transacted today than there has been for the previous three days as well. So,
0: yeah. Yeah. And look, something I've noticed too, obviously, I keep a pretty close eye on dusty cards, for example. And I had a quick look on eBay yesterday and there were six dusty dominance cards. Granted, some of the prices were pretty hefty. But, I mean, I haven't seen that many listed for... Well, pretty much since it started, they were pretty much going up and getting bought straight away, whereas it looks like there's some people now that are trying to replenish a little bit of money, get a little bit back. They haven't been able to do the trade deals that they want, so they're hoping to, you know, probably get a higher price than what we expected. But, um, you know, I, for me, that was a, a glaring sign yesterday that, you know, a week ago or a week and a half ago, dusty cards were being snapped up by anyone that had one or didn't have one, should I say?
1: Yeah, you know, a lot of that's always going to come down to the player, the card type, and the team, obviously, and the collector base of the team. And I, I'm just seeing on the side of my screen here, Asher Ezekiel said uh, a couple of minutes ago, I've no, you know, he says... The beta mine. I've noticed a lot of the high flyers cards. It's on screen now. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, A lot of the high flyers cards have dropped in price by fifty percent, for example, especially the high flyers. So, for the most part, Asha um, and Asha, uh, I'm aware of because we deal with each other, is relatively new to the hobby as well. So, in the in the years gone by, or at least the last couple of years, and especially with Series Two product, I have found that cards have dropped to that sort of fifty percent mark as well before they start bouncing. Um, My opinion this time around, and again, it's sort of backed up by the data and the numbers, is that for the most part, 30% or 33% or or thereabouts was the peak of where the drop went. However, when I say those percentages, it's, it's not in the sense of every single card. There's always going to be outliers going both directions with upwards and downwards price pressure. So exactly what you've said there, the high flyers, that's an interesting subset there. The high flyers, they're obviously numbered to 60. However, a lot of the high flyers have maintained their price. They've dropped maybe 20% or 30%. And there's even a couple that have bucked the trend and continued to go up. But there are the lesser teams and lesser collected players that have dropped up to that 50% mark. And it's purely, you know, that is supply and demand and market forces being, you know, at, at the absolute finest, really. And it just shows you... Um, you know asha you go for melbourne you collect melbourne for example the melbourne high flyers have dropped i've noticed the port adelaide one has dropped significantly uh the you know the the fremantle the the jeff farmer has dropped and stuff but then on the contrary you look at the collingwood chris tarrant one it's held really well in the market it's even potentially gone up a little bit the wayne carey one has really held up in the market as well um you know the the knights the nice one has held up in the market. So there's a few of them that have held up there. But yeah, in general, my opinion is that the, the drop hasn't been as significant as what it's
0: been previously. Yeah. And we'll certainly talk, you know, in cardboard school tonight, we're actually going to talk a little bit about some pricing. And um, High Flyers is an interesting one you've touched on because we'll certainly be talking about that a little bit. Um, I guess look, you touched on it briefly before about break pricing. There seems to have been a little bit of a, and I guess this was natural, that ever since Cherry put out the $4,000 bounty basically day one, the price of cases for breakers went up 30% overnight before before they were even released. There was always going to be an evolution as that price continued to grow, The break prices would have to increase. Um, And we certainly know that through some of the breaks that we're going on at the moment, you know, gone to the days where you can go and do a two-box break for thirty bucks. It just doesn't happen anymore. Um, do you want to explain, probably, to some of the listeners that perhaps might be a little bit new into this space of of why why are break prices more costly than perhaps they were during prestige?
1: Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, absolutely. We can we can break down the economics of breaks and the breaks thing. You know, both of us, you and I, both, AJ, we spend obviously a lot of time on the Facebook groups and we, we see a lot of the feedback. The recurring theme every couple of days is there either a post goes up or a post effectively gets hijacked to talk about breaks and the cost yep. of breaks and people having big issues with, with the cost of breaks. Um, and that's completely understandable, especially if people don't understand the economics behind it. Breaks as, the, as we used to know them and the, those people that were going in breaks in 2019 and prior in terms of AFL, what we went in back then, it, it doesn't exist anymore. That, that, that doesn't exist because those breaks were breaking at the recommended retail price of a product or even below RRP because of the access to stock and, 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 and the demand wasn't there at a broad level for a product to sell out so quickly, and therefore the value of sealed stock never went above recommended retail price. Yep, sure. it, it and wasn't, it, wasn't it wasn't until a month after the release of Supremacy. So Supremacy last year sold out in, uh, in a few days, whatever, but it wasn't for a month afterwards that we started to see prices go up. And I remember very specifically at the time when a $500 box of Supremacy was all of a sudden $800 on eBay, It was the absolute talk of the hobby. Everyone is just going, wow, you know, how is it possible? This is this is rubbish. You know, that's a $500 box that's selling for $800. And as Bodie Brown has just said and is up on the screen and many people are saying it right now, it is supply and demand. That it broke down a barrier a financial barrier, a psychological barrier, a market barrier. Supremacy 2019 absolutely changed the game. It was timing, it was product, it was a a whole combination of different things that came together and that set the scene for what would then potentially happen in the future. Then all of a sudden, fast forward six months, you've got the, the card boom of 2020 in full effect you have a product, you know, a a series 1.5, for lack of a better description, we'll call it, which was prestige comes out and it sells out instantly and it changes the game because the singles market started moving up based on the participation rate and a number of other factors. And therefore the cost of sealed product went up, the demand for break starts to go through the roof. If someone can't buy a box of cards to bust open themselves, well, the next best, best thing is buying into a break effectively and allowing that to happen on a live stream in a transparent manner. So as a result of that, the amount of breakers that exist increases and therefore the volume of stock increases. Fast forward then a couple of months following Prestige and let's talk about what's going on now with dominance. So all of a sudden we have a release where everyone's competing to buy stock, to buy those boxes and those cases on the marketplace. It's not just the collectors, it's not just the flippers, it's not just speculators, it's not just the investors but it's breakers and it's lots of them. And they can't they, they can't just have one box. It's not sustainable. They need to buy an amount of stock on an ongoing basis. But due to how quickly it sells out, the breakers can't buy all that stock, just like everyone else on purchase, and they need to then purchase that stock on the secondary market. Now, the reality of basic economics and supply and demand is... Every single person that wants to buy that product needs to choose what that price ceiling is that they're prepared to pay for it. And if they don't want to pay an amount of money, well, the choice is, is there someone else that wants to come in and do it? In the past, it's never been an issue. There's always been an oversupply of stock. But now the the, the breakers need so much stock, it's fueling the, the price situation on it. So in my opinion, you know, Grayson, who we had on the show a couple of weeks ago, talked about, that cherry was buying cases at four to five thousand, with the intent of breaking down those cases. They're not bra- They weren't. They weren't putting them into breaks. They said they'll put a few in breaks, but they were breaking them down into singles for their own website and for the singles yeah. market over a period of time. Um, now, I know from like my personal perspective, I'm not going to be going and paying four to five thousand dollars for a case for myself to break open and extract the cards out of that. Sure, I paid the retail price for cases or for, you know, a couple of cases like everyone else did or boxes, whatever it may be, but I, I can't afford to do that or it's not practical for me to do that from a breaker's perspective. Well, that's what they have to do. If they want to service all those people out there that want to participate in those breaks, they've got to pay the price for it. So maybe do you want to give a bit of an explanation about what's going on with the cost of cases and then break that down for everyone
0: in terms of that? Yeah, and this question obviously just came through on the thread too from Scott Marsh. Is it supply and demand or greed? And look, I can't speak for individual breakers. Everyone's situation is different, but we ran a couple of numbers in our production meeting today. And for example, you can't really buy a case of dominance now for less than about five and a half thousand, let's call it five to six thousand, somewhere in that range. That's basically the market range now. If you break that down into cost, the cost price for a two box break for one slot, so one team, is about 50 bucks, 52 bucks. So, you know, once you add some postage, once you also make sure that the guy gets a little bit of money that's doing the break as well, you know, I don't know, there, there's some people out there that will have opened cases and some that wouldn't. Personally, I know I've opened a couple of cases through Prestige. It takes a bloody long time to sort a case of cards. So if you're doing a break, you're doing a performance, you're chasing, you're chasing all the money up, you're doing all the postage. They need to earn a couple of hundred bucks from that as well. So, you know, is it greed? Well, I don't know. You know, some play, some guys will charge more than others, but I think it's supply and demand. If you can go and buy a case and you're selling out breaks every day for it, well, I wouldn't call that greed. I would call that supply and demand. Yeah, well, I think that
1: you know the greed aspect's an interesting one because if you don't have customers then there's no ability to be greedy. There's no money to be made from the yep. from the, their perspective, whether you're a breaker, a uh, bricks and mortar store, wh- whatever it may be, and that's in any industry or any line of work. So ultimately, it's us, the participants, the people in the hobby that are fueling what's going on here. So, you know, I totally understand people getting aggravated and going, well, this is this is rubbish. Breakers are greedy. It's not fair. It's, it's not fair. Ultimately, All they're doing is fulfilling the demand that exists. If people stopped buying break spots, then those breakers can't exist. They can't afford to go and purchase the product. I think the market and the purchasers, the participants are the ones that are ultimately determining every factor of what's going on here. And most importantly, the cost of those cases. If we stop buying break spots at $52, $27, whatever it may be, then the breakers aren't going to be buying cases at $5,000 but as long as us as participants and and customers keep going and doing it that's what's going to keep happening and from my perspective I'm I'm and you as well we are very guilty parties in going in breaks there's no doubt about it again sure. I I sure. you know I'm I'm not really doing it during the day but at night time I'm getting my enjoyment out of that at the moment I'm getting the thrill of being able to be involved in in the cards being opened up, trying to hit something, the gambling aspect of that, the social interaction, as I talked about before, the camaraderie, the trades, the wheeling, the dealing, just everything that goes with it. And my big thing is, and I'm a really big preacher of this as well, like I'm not involved in trading cards just for the chase of the card or just for that piece of cardboard. It's everything that goes with it. It's the social interaction. It's the sense of community, the sense of participation, being around like-minded people. Then it's the thrill of the chase. Can you get something? Can you achieve it? Wow, I achieved it. I love that. You know, there's, there's just so many things to it. Um, so, yeah, I, I, what, what's going on at the moment? People can call it artificial. They can say whatever they want. But at the end of the day... We're real humans, and all the people watching this stream right now—they are real humans as well. And humans, we work. Well, generally, we do whatever it is we we need to do to generate the money we have to go buy packets, boxes, breaks, single cards, whatever it is. So we decide with our wallets. We make the decision for ourselves. So ultimately, every individual person is is a contributor and accountable for the state of the market at any given point in time.
0: Yeah, and look, as one of the mentions that Benny Griff just posted up on the screen too, is that for me, look, I'm in a fortunate position that I've got a lot of the cards that I'm chasing for. But when I'm sitting, you know, the kids have gone to bed, I, you know, we can't go out here in Melbourne, it's entertainment for me. You know, I jump in a couple of breaks, I have a chat with a few different guys, I've made heaps of new friends through breaks, it's a great little community, there's lots of banter. um, But I think, you know, probably to sum it up, or we've, you know, summed it up pretty well is that, where the breakers are are servicing an obvious demand. Um, But actually that brings a good point to me. So AJ, does there become a tipping point? Does there become a tipping point where suddenly the stock becomes too expensive for not only the breakers to buy, but the people that are going in the breaks? So say if we wake up tomorrow morning and the new price for a case of dominance is $10,000. Do you think suddenly then people will be happy to pay $100, $120 for a spot? Or at that point, they're like, hang on a sec.
1: Yeah, so you have that stalemate that that starts to kick in there. And the stalemate is, well, ultimately the cost of a case or a box or whatever, the ceiling price can only get to a certain point based on what's extracted from inside the packets in that box. If you cannot get, if there's cards in there that don't stack up on the secondary marketplace to achieve a certain value, then the the proposition to purchase no longer exists unless the the cards on the secondary market go up as singles in terms of value. So you've got that stalemate between the price ceiling on a case versus the price ceiling on singles. And one's going to give one way or the other. If the singles reach a critical mass, basically, and reach a point of critical mass where they can't go up any higher in value, well, that will be reflected in on the basis that cases can't go up in value. Right now, what's going on with dominance is it's a loaded product. Uh, the definition of loaded product, or my definition, is a product that you can purchase a box or a case of it at the retail price or at the set price point that you can extract more in value based on the cards that are in the case than what the case is actually worth. And that is exactly why cases are selling for $5,000 is because there's so many hits in there. There's so many low-numbered case hits and subsets that have such significant value to them. That's the reality of it. You know, people knew this is going to happen. As soon as they announced what was in this product and you could figure out there was going to be at least five but possibly six cards all under 60 in number, including signatures. Well, people began to realize very quickly that the recommended retail price of $2,800, you'd have to find the absolute worst case in the world to not be able to, to have the value back in single cards on the secondary market. And all you needed was one decent card from a decent play, a team or decent player to have well above your $2,800. So yeah, I don't think there's much further it can go with this current series at the moment unless there was an additional explosion of people coming into the hobby. We've had a huge increase of participation, a huge increase of new entries, um, and that, that happens on, on a weekly and, and daily basis. But for this product to go from five or 6,000 a case up to 10,000 a case, we'd need to be looking at literally thousands more people
0: joining in the next four weeks, and I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I see that. Yep, I, 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 I completely agree. I completely agree. And look, you know, everyone... Do your own research. You know, there's definitely some comments coming through about certain breakers and things like that. And we're not really interested in that stuff. It's not about, you know, saying who's good, bad, or indifferent. Um, You know, everyone has to experience things for themselves. Different communities are for different people, different product, different price point. You know, ask your friends, ask other people that you know in the community, and find a break or a community or a Facebook page or whatever that works for you. Um, Different pages and different groups are different people. So... Yeah. 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 Totally. Just, you know, do your own research. Ask yeah. ask someone. You know what I mean? Don't be afraid to ask questions of people.
1: That's it. And and again, just to just to back up that point there, because again, I'm I'm seeing a few of those comments as well, and it seems to be the recurring thing. There are really fantastic operators, there are subpar operators, and no doubt from time to time there's always been crooks. Brakes are not a new thing. They've exploded in AFL, but they've been around for years in every other type of of, of, of hobby, of trading cards, you know, in and category of trading cards. Um, yeah. People need to do their own research. You know, one thing I would say is for everyone on the Facebook community, if you're not already on it, there's a fantastic page, Australian Sports Card Scammers Exposed. And although it has no official titling, it's a community of people who do due diligence and, and basically expose things that are going wrong in the hobby and whether that's peer-to-peer trades and sales that that seem to not go wrong or it's full-scale scams or dodgy brake operators, whatever it is, they tend to get exposed there. So as you said, I think it's not really for us to say who is bad or, or I'm always happy to say what I've done and which breakers I've been in with and that I've had a good experience with. I'm not going to go out and bag someone, but everyone has the ability to do their own research and people can figure it out pretty quickly which are, which are the bad ones and the ones that you don't want to be breaking with.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I completely agree with that, too. And obviously, we're getting a couple of comments about your mo. So um, you may not see this, Jenks, but um, you've got a few little gremlins going on on your side of the screen. And you actually look a little bit like Luigi from Mario Brothers. So I'm seeing a little bit of the mo and the green shirt come up. But don't worry, it has been been relaxing itself occasionally, but everyone's having a nice laugh at that as well. Uh, the, 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 The lighting, is it? The lighting... Well, I don't know what it is, but uh, I might have I might have done some manipulation with the side for a laugh. But either way, we'll be fine. You still sound great, which is always good. Um, but look, actually, just quick question that um, Ben Griff posted. Let me see if I can find it again. Um, there will be a time when there's no product to break. What happens then? Like, what happens in? Say, you know, because we I think we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. We worked about, um, I think we talked about this on air, what percentage of stock we thought was broken two weeks ago. And I think we sort of gauged around the 50% mark. Now a week or a week and a half later, what percentage of the stock do you think now has been broken? Uh, So my opinion is uh, based on
1: what I'm aware various people, you know, or what I assume different people have, But also then what's been received from all the card zone boxes in the last week plus what's been broken and everything i'm thinking roughly around the 65 to 70 percent of the total production run is now being opened up uh so still sitting with about 30 percent unopened uh that's where i think it's at and uh yeah what the question that benny benny just asked with respect to what happens when the stock actually runs out i think you know The breakers are going to be quite innovative, and they're already being innovative in what they're doing in order to drag out the product as long as possible. And that's not just a financial thing for them. It's also providing people an opportunity to keep participating for a longer period of time. So the product's already starting to thin out. There's no doubt about it. And what we start to see is break dilution, basically. And this is not a negative at all, and I'm not having a go at the breakers whatsoever, they're being innovative and it's smart and it's what actually needs to happen. And it actually ends up being good because we see some fantastic cards um, come out from older series, but they're having to dilute the breaks in order to prolong the amount of breaks that can be done with the new series. So what you're seeing a lot of now is maybe a break that has a box or two of dominance mixed in with a certified 16 or a certified 17, or from time to time, a legacy or a or a Prestige, you know, I think it was the guys over at Universal Breaks or, or Aussie Breaks, it might have been, um, I think it's Glenn and Ricky, Damien and, and Ricky and those guys, they, they seem to get their hands on some Prestige and they managed to mix in some of the Prestige. I saw that was really popular. Um, certified 16 and 17 it was a product that never sold out. And what's happened now is in the last probably eight weeks, the product is pretty much sold out now at a retail level and the wholesale level because the breakers need it to, to keep it going and to keep people entertained and to keep the action happening. So I think we'll see more and more of, of the mixes. Um, and ultimately what's going to happen is that the, the people, us, the participants will we'll guide the breakers in the direction by, based on the fill rate and the breakers I'm sure would be assessing on a daily basis what's working and what's not working and making adjustments
0: accordingly in that regard. Yeah, and I just want to touch on a question that's come up in the feed. I won't put it on the screen because it's a little bit long. But um, Scott's mentioned that he sees that breakers are opening tons and tons of product. You know, he can't get his hands on any. He's wanting to know where they're getting hold of all this. Well, look, Scott, I've seen a few people ask this question over the last couple of weeks. We touched on this a little bit earlier. The reality is they're going and buying it between five dollars and $6,000 a case, and that is how they're getting the stock no one and i mean nobody i will bet my whole card collection on it no one is buying cases of dominance now at 2800 bucks no one so that is how they're getting more stock they're going and paying an absolute premium for it and then that is how they're constantly able to keep breaking it. no one's getting it at wholesale no one's getting it at retail everything's being acquired at a higher price
1: yeah um just to expand expand on that a little bit and, and what scott has said there my honest opinion is that everyone has now had the opportunity to purchase product. I am not aware. I, I literally do not know one person that didn't get product from Cardzone that wanted it. Every single person I've spoken to, and it's a lot of people who placed a box order to buy one or two boxes from Cardzone, they got their boxes. No one's order was rejected or refused. Um, I saw, you know, Anthony Trigger, who for, who's got APT Collectibles, who is a big player in this in this scene and has been for a long time. He had boxes available on his website as recently as today. They all sold out, and they were very well priced three hundred and fifty dollars. You cannot find those prices anywhere. People had the opportunity to buy it. I think we're in a situation where if someone hasn't been able to get the stock, well, that that that's That's on them, really, at this point. It's been available. It's been out there. Everyone went nuts on that pre-order day. People complained they didn't get stock. We thought, we suggested, we'll just relax, everyone. It's not even on the market yet. Give it a few days till the release actually comes out. People will have the opportunity to actually purchase. Once again, the amount of people who were dirty on that Monday or Tuesday of the pre-order that come the Thursday or the Friday when it was actually available at retail, that came out and were posting photos and comments all over social media i managed to get two boxes i got this from sports card world i got this from card zone i got this from diggers collectibles i got this from sunshine i got this from wherever it was people had the opportunity to do it and you know at the end of the day i think there will always be others who will no matter what they're not going to be satisfied. So if someone only got one box or two boxes, they won't be satisfied. But at the exact same time, there's people I saw complaining that they couldn't get a case, but not once in my history have I ever seen them even attempt to buy a case anyway. So it's almost like, I think there's a bit of a bandwagon going on there in that sense. And people are jumping on different bandwagons. as one which is, well, screw the hobby, this is bullshit, this is not fair, blah, blah, blah. And then there's the the more pragmatic view of, okay, well, I look around me and 70% of the people I've dealt with this release, I didn't know them on the previous release, which means there's all these new people here. So I'm not just competing with AJ anymore to go and buy single cards or buy boxes or buy packets. I'm competing with all these new people. And that is demand, that is pure demand right there. So again, no doubt, some people found themselves in sticky situations where they couldn't attain boxes or packets, they may not have jumped on it quick enough, they may not have had the time or the right time in the right place, but for the the most part, the money at the time, whatever the means, whatever it may be, but I think for the most part, if people wanted stock, maybe they couldn't
0: get as much as they wanted, but they could at least get something. Yep, I agree. All right, well, look, we'll move on because obviously we could probably sit here and talk about this for an hour. Um, Just quickly, I'm hearing a few things on the AJ number one grapevine (laughs) that there may be another release coming this year. Have you heard anything about this, AJ2? Um, So I haven't actually really had anyone
1: say anything to me but I've just been getting these funny these funny feelings. Like, it's two things. There's a couple of things here. One, select normally releases a product going into that Christmas time period and whether it's a Christmas-specific product or it's something else like a limited release that they normally do, it seems to occur quite often. Um, this year, things are a little bit different because we've already had three releases this year. We did have three releases last year, which was footy stars dominance one and then supremacy which was a super special and then nothing else sort of came out after that from from memory this time around we've had footy stars we've had the 1.5 version hobby release of prestige which was just a huge a huge thing you know obviously it was a massive success massive success, yep. massive success. And then we've had dominance which has been a huge success but dominance still isn't a supremacy so uh, I, I don't know, There's a. I just have these weird feelings. I feel like something is coming and I feel like it's something beyond just a Christmas release. I could be totally wrong about this. I probably am totally wrong about it, but to me, I just see weird signs and maybe I'm making something of nothing, but I do see these weird signs that to me indicate there's potentially something else coming.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah and look, I must stress, I, I asked this question I do not know. So I'm already getting... My phone is already beeping. I do not know about any other release. It's just some whispers I'm hearing. Peter Buchanan asking whether it's an AFLW release. Probably unlikely considering they haven't played this year. But, Pete, I'm sure we can find you some AFLW cards from footy stars this year. All right. That was good. We're um, Obviously, everyone loves hearing you talk, AJ too. But this is what everyone has come for. The second edition of Cardboard School. (laughs) So we obviously had a fantastic success success last week um, talking about how to pack and send cards and also how to redeem cards. So a little bit of a, what I call a hot topic, and we probably could have done this a couple of weeks ago, but I thought good time to bring it up now. And that is about card pricing. So I obviously get asked day in, day out about what cards are worth. Is this worth this? Is this worth that? You see trades going on. You see sales threads. Let's go through some scenarios about how to price cards. So probably this one is, again, a little bit time lagged, but when a new series of cards comes out, and let's talk about the hollows, okay? How would you price? Okay, let me rephrase that. Dominance 3 is coming out in a week's time, Jax. Whoa. All right? In a week's time. I know, I know. And and, and it's exactly the same card formulation or similar. What are you pricing the hollows at next week?
1: Yeah, so uh, um, there's just so many contributing factors to prices.
0: And, um, educate. The,
1: the, the, the funny thing about prices is it seems to be an evolving thing. But one thing I can tell you about the price of AFL cards specifically it's dramatically changed even in the last six months because we've gone from a period where there would generally be a broad, not an, a broad supply on an ongoing basis of the type of cards everyone wanted, pretty much unless you're like a Collingwood collector or a Tigers collector, unfortunately in your case. Um, but what's happened in that last six months is because of the growth, there's been so much participatory growth in the hobby and so many new entrants into the hobby Well, the demand is starting to outstrip the supply. So the historical pricing of a card of what it used to cost or what it cost the last time it changed hands isn't, can't be seen as the key measurement anymore. I think to me, and the big thing that I've been saying, especially the last sort of six to eight weeks is depth. And when I talk about the depth of the market and the depth of what's out there, I'm talking about what there is on the sell side Versus how many people there are that want to purchase those cards. Peter Buchanan's calling $200 on that uh, on Logo Hollows. Um, so to answer your question directly, cards coming out next week, I would have to refer to a situation of what is the numbering of those cards and the quantity of each of those individual cards versus how many people are currently in the marketplace and participating in collecting, um, coupled with our latest data sets of what happened during dominance, what happened during prestige, what has happened in the last six months or three to six months, basically um, really hard to put it, put an actual price on where the market would open up. I felt that the hollows for this series, and I would presume you think the same, but the hollows and the on the rise cards opened up probably quite a lot higher than what people had anticipated, but they also held up a lot higher than people anticipated as well because there was more people going after them, so the higher price is a reflection that there's more demand in the marketplace. Um, so that answers your question, I suppose. Specifically, uh, if you, want, I'm happy to get more into how my perception of market depth. Oh, okay, and, okay, and, yeah, yeah. If you want,
0: so so, so for example, so for example. Uh, Uh, you know, you can't compare apples and apples because obviously every series is different. As you said, the maturity and the size of the market is constantly growing. But let's use the hollow, for example. If a hollow in dominance three is the same number set, is that automatically mean that it's worth the same as a hollow in dominance two? And likewise, a a hollow in dominance two, is that worth the same as a hollow in dominance one? does there have to be a natural increase There, there doesn't have to be a natural increase so to speak but the expectation
1: would be that if the market has changed then the prices of cards would be a reflection of that you know um an absolute reflection of that there's more people so the cards are going to cost more money in the same way that why, why are high flyers more expensive for this series than they were last year? Why are dominance cards more expensive for this series than they were last year? Why have influentials opened at a higher price than they did in 2016 and 17? Why are the captain signatures opening at higher prices and maintaining higher prices for this series than they did in 2019? Well, firstly, there's a lot more demand now. And secondly, go and find those cards from last year. You'll only get a handful of them. And those cards are are gonna be at the same price level as what these ones are now. Um, Let's talk about something that I know because I collect the card, Tim Membry High Flyer, Trevor Barker High Flyer. They've been released 12 months apart from each other. Last year when Dominance came out, I was picking up Tim Membry High Flyers for between 80 and an absolute maximum of $130. If you want a Tim Membry High Flyer right now, if you can find one, I don't even know if there's any listed on eBay at the moment. There's certainly none on Facebook. I imagine if there's any on eBay, they're between $200 and $300, yeah? Well, I can tell you definitively, this series, the equivalent card for me is the Trevor Barker High Flyer. They opened at like $450. They opened at that price. So I immediately knew, well, i got a problem here. If I think I'm going to get that card at $110 or $130, I'm living in an absolute fantasy world. It's not going to happen. Look how many people there are in the hobby now. Look how many more secure people there are now. The club is performing well. It has the biggest membership level and supporter base in the history of the club. The natural reaction to that is going to be a a percentage of those people want to support their club or be more ingrained in the culture of AFL, and as a result of that, they go get some merchandise or they buy a T-shirt or they decide to go and get cards and they wanna then collect some cards. They start off with a few and they want more. So I'm conscious that the pricing of trading cards of the equivalent card in 2019 actually really has no bearing. It's, it's, almost, it's almost irrelevant. Aside from the physicality of it and the physical quality of the card and how it looks in your collection, the price doesn't really have a huge bearing on it. So I knew from the outset, Well, if I want these Trevor Barkers for this series, I can't look at the past and say, well it was this much last year that's how much i should pay for it well you know what the price of petrol when i first got my license a long time ago was like 40 cents a litre It's a dollar 50 a litre yeah i complained for a little while but then i just accepted that that's that's what it actually is now because there's demand for it all of a sudden coronavirus kicks in at a global level no one needs to drive their car around anymore what happened to the price of petrol it went down to like 90 cents at one point Where's it now? Yeah. It's like at $1.20 now because half the world is open and driving and the other half isn't. If anyone doesn't think it's going to be a dollar fifty after Christmas when the whole world is open, they're living in a fantasy world. That's reality. You know, what what how we would like things to be versus how things are are two very different things. And a lot of people I think need to to make a, a really informed decision in their own mind of Well, I can sit here and say the cards are too expensive, it costs too much, and I'll never – and not go and attain the card, and then they have to accept the fact that they may never end up with that card, or they need to make the decision and go, well, you know what? The price of cards overall on a broad level has actually gone up. So everything I buy moving forward is going to be more expensive. However, everything I have in my collection to date Will look like I got it for a bargain because it's worth so much more now. And you're always going to have people and say, well, they don't associate the monetary investment value in cards. It's purely emotional. It's purely collecting. It's purely for for the fun of it. But at the end of the day, I think I'd be pretty hard pressed to find one person if I said to them, congratulations for the last ten years, you went and bought cards and you know you spent one hundred thousand dollars on your card collection, but it's only worth five cents now but you don't care about that because who cares it's just you're doing it just for fun well i know in my instance that that certainly isn't the case i'm collecting cards i'm having an amazing time doing it and i'm building this incredible collection and i really hope that by the time my kids are at an age that they're ready to buy a car or their first home or whatever it may be they they become an age of responsibility what they enjoyed collecting with their their father as a kid they then have as an asset and that they can decide what they want to do with it. But I would be horrified if all the money I've spent on cards in 10 years' time are worth absolutely nothing. Yeah, I've had a great time with it and all that sort of stuff, and I'm, I'm loving it, and I love the collecting side of it, as I said, but surely there's got to be retained investment value just like any piece of artwork or any other form of collectible. There'll be waves. It will dip. It'll dip by the day, by the week, by the month, and by the year. It, it will... It will all change. Right now, though, what I can tell you is if you were involved in the card scene a year ago, your collection is worth somewhere between 20 and 200% more than what it was this time last
0: year. Absolutely. And, look, you know, as everyone at home now is probably getting a, a snapshot of the kind of rants that I get from AJ2 on a daily basis, yeah. is absolutely spot on. And as much as we are all in this hobby for the fun of it and the collecting and the chase and all that, there has to be a little bit of a fiscal tie-in with it, whether it's the money that you're putting into it or the money that you're hoping to get out of it. If you don't care about the money side of it, go and collect Team Coach or go and collect something else that doesn't have the same, you know, limited print runs or demand or all those sorts of things. You can call it
1: basic. Sorry, I have to cut you off here. I have to do it. All right, all right. Because you've said it before in a previous episode there are so many different types of cards and so many different price points there is something for absolutely everyone people who who want to go deep and spend serious money they can go and spend thousands tens of thousands they can have the best signatures the best of everything however someone who just wants to spend five dollars they can go and spend that five dollars and get all the same feelings they can chase it They can have the feeling of euphoria. They can enjoy it with their friends, their family, their kids, their parents, whatever it may be. There is something for everyone, absolutely everyone. We don't all need to just go for the best. We need to collect within our means. Every person has different individual circumstances and people need to collect within their means and they shouldn't get upset at others that collect in a different capacity or a different way. That's my opinion anyway.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and look, you know, I could talk a little bit of it from a personal. Obviously, I collect Richmond stuff and Dusty stuff, which is all could be considered high end stuff. But, you know, I decided that I wanted to collect these stupid logos this year. And, you know, no one wanted them in the first week. They were a couple of bucks each, you know what I mean? But I got the same enjoyment and the chase out of collecting a couple of logos for each team than I did for chasing at my first Dusty Showstopper or what it might have been. So you're absolutely spot on. You've completely hijacked this segment. So let's just try to pull it back a little bit, AJ. I'm sorry. Now, we're talking about pricing. We're talking about pricing here. When you've got a card, and let's say a uh, 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 Scott Pendlebury, a Scott Pendlebury holo card, explain to me how you would then price a random number, number 237, versus a jumper number or a 001. What would be a good tip for people out there? And it doesn't have to be Scott Penderbury. It can be Sean Higgins or Cam Rainer or whoever it might be. But just a, a regular hollow card. Tell me how you would try to come up with a price for a 001 or a jumper number.
1: Absolutely. All right, so I'm going to pretense this with... Cards are only worth what someone is prepared to pay for them ultimately. You've got got a buyer and a seller. A seller has a price in mind they want to sell a card for and a buyer has a price in mind they want to buy the card for. In most cases, they're apart from each other and one party's either got to concede one direction or the other. Otherwise, the stalemate continues. So you're either going to have a seller that's going to come down in price to the buyer's level Or you're going to have that buyer or a different buyer turn up that's prepared to pay the asking price for the card now when it comes to zero ones low numbers so under nine and under or jersey jumper number cards there is a additional perceived value to those cards for individuals who collect those particular cards now i'll use myself as an example when i first came into the hobby numbering wasn't a thing in hindsight I absolutely stuffed up because I was offered early on so many great St Kilda jumper numbers and zero twos at the time. We'll talk. We can talk about that afterwards. Why zero twos are not zero ones, but zero twos were effectively the first off the line card in terms of the press. So I was offered a lot and a lot of low numbers, zero twos, low numbers, jumper numbers, whatever. And at the time, and there'd be a bunch of people that know now, and either I have the card now or I don't, but. Um, a bunch of people would remember me saying no 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 i I don't collect numbers i don't care about that i don't want to know that that car's 400 instead of 150 because i don't care about the numbers now the reality of it is a lot of people place a higher value on 01s and jumper numbers and low numbers myself included uh it's probably stems from psychological it's a psychological thing but the psychological thing created a perception and the perception has now become a living reality. The general, the general consensus is that, depending on the type of card it is, the lower numbered cards are worth more than an any random numbered card. A zero, a zero one or jumper number is worth a multiple of it. Now, what I've found is on a percentage basis in terms of a multiple of, the more lower end the card, the higher the multiplication is. So on a hollow, for example, I'm going to put it, I'm just going to put it out there. People see what I do publicly anyway. You can see me buying cards. But let's say, let's say there is a, uh, a Hunter Clark or a Josh Battle or whoever it is, there's a holographic from Dominance and it's numbered to 350. A, a standard any number holographic, I'm paying anywhere between $2 and $5 a unit at any given time. A low, num- a low number under 10, I'm happy to pay around the 20, maybe the 25 mark, depending on who it is. A zero, one or jumper number to me is around a $50 card, okay? That's that's where, that, that's where it's sitting. So on that basis, I'm prepared to basically pay f- between five times and 10 times for an one or jumper number of a lower value, higher production card however if it's a jack steel uh, a jack steel dominance card or a influential card something that already starts at a much higher value i won't apply the same multiple i think it's worth maybe double to two and a half times and again it's a personal preference thing but it's generally to me it's double two and a half maybe maybe a, a, you know a multiple of three of what i would pay for a normal one um probably not fair of me to say because of the sellers what i've paid for certain cards but yep. i can tell you definitively i have the 09 jack steel dominance card and i have secured the 01 jack steel dominance card yep. they they cost me within 50 dollars of each other so one of one of those one of those two i paid 50 more dollars than what i paid for the other one However, both of them are sitting at between at about two to two and a half times what I paid for other other ones, basically, that I have in my collection. I'm not going to say how many I've got because I don't no, want to no, upset no. anyone. No, no, yeah.
0: so, uh, so so you, you put a really good point there. And I guess obviously talking about the, the size of the print run and the amount that there is in the series, that can vary the multiplier. So I pose this question to you. And let's use the hollow example for example. For an example, example, example. Um, If a jumper number and an 01 is the highest and then a 0 to 10 or 1 to 10 might be in the next bracket, if cards have got a 350 run, does that mean a card that's 25 is worth more than a card that is 95? Is a card that's 14 worth more than a card that's 60? Where, Where do you draw the line at where the multiplier should start?
1: Again, it comes down to what your intent is as a collector, but also who are you competing with in the marketplace. If all of a sudden you go, you're collecting a type of card, or a, you're a team collector for a team that has a multitude of people that also want low numbers, well, that's or, or particular numbers that's going to drive the price up. Um, to me, a random number that isn't un, that isn't first off the line last and last number or under 10 in number, under nine in number, to me, it has no increased value. However, there are people out there that collect very specific cards. Uh, there's a, you know, there comes to mind immediately, there's a gentleman called Gary, I won't put his surname out there, but most of the people on deck here will know. He's a pies collector, but he collects very specific pies. Not only does he collect nine and under, he collects everything in a multiple of, of, of 10, basically. So he collects 10. 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100, and so on and so forth. So for him, I'm assuming for him, that is about his collection all all being symmetrical, basically, in the way it looks and the way it is. So if he looks at his folder or his collection and he looks up and down a page of nine pockets, everything's going to be numbered similar. And to me, I'm the same with low numbers, Yeah. I'm low-number master set. I low-number master sets in Kilda, separate to what I do in jumpers and O1s. My jumper numbers and zero 01 cards do not form part of my master set. So a lot of the time people will be like, hey, well, you got the 01 of that card and you got the jumper number of the card. Well, why do you want the 07? Why do you want the zero five? Because separate to my collection of 01s and my personal collection of 01s and jumpers, I have a fully sequenced and folded master set of St Kilda where I'm trying to achieve every single card under under nine in that set. Like one of the cards from each player or each card type in that set. So imagine for me, I have literally, my master set runs across like eight folders or something. One of every St Kilda card ever produced. And a lot of those cards are numbered. And I have areas within my collection and my set that I could have all these cards are under nine in number. And then all of a sudden I've got something that's 223, and 225. So to me, to go and get that card at a lower number, it, I'm gonna pay a lot more money because it's not just about that particular card, but it's what does that card mean to me in the context of my whole collection and what I'm doing. So with respect to Gary and back on that topic, with respect to Gary and the fact that he collects in 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, I think he, he's probably pretty fortunate that he doesn't see a big price increase on those cards because he's probably the only person that's doing it. However, if someone if there's someone else out there that decided they wanted to collect those ones, well that's market forces at work and once again comes back to supply and demand. If there is demand for strange or particular, not strange, but very particular numbering, well then it's gonna increase the cost of what those numbers are. So yeah, does that answer your question?
0: Well, I mean, obviously you made it all about yourself as per usual, but yes, it it certainly does. Um, And look, I guess another part about pricing is that a lot of times, obviously there's pricing for a transaction. Someone wants to sell something, someone wants to buy something. When people are wanting to do trades across, say, different series. So an example, and we touched on this a little bit before. Say a, a Nick Haynes high flyer. From the current dominant series so it's a, a 60 of 60 card it's a gws player so it's not a hugely in demand team how would that price compare or for a trade versus say a nick haynes green which is of 60 from the previous previous series are they apples and apples are they apples and oranges explain how because obviously lots of people go through these trades all the time you know who who has the higher value card there in that situation? Um, okay,
1: so it's certainly not apples and apples can never be viewed as apples and apples because there's. I'll go through exactly why, but it's apples and oranges. Throw in a banana, a mango, a watermelon, a cantaloupe. There's a whole bunch of stuff going on there, yeah. and we need to look at things now. Firstly, many people know my opinion on prestige. The green parallels in prestige number to sixty continue to be massively undervalued from a long-term perspective because there is only 60 of each individual card. Now to directly talk about what you're asking here, which is a high flyer from dominance is numbered to 60, a green parallel from prestige is numbered to 60. Why is a high flyer selling it five times or six times or two times, whatever it may be, depending on the player and the team, why is it selling it so much more of a markup when they're still numbered to 60. Well, a couple of key, key factors here, guys. The first one is one is a case hit and one is a box hit or a minimum of a one per box hit. The green parallels have 11, I think there's 11 players for every single team represented in that parallel set. And the high flyers only have one per team. So in total, uh, you've got 18 variations of a high flyer in an entire series of cards versus, however, let's just say for argument's sake, there's 220 of the green parallels for individual players. So there's a lot more of those green parallels and they're much easier to hit. They're easier to hit, though, as a general card. It doesn't mean they're easier to hit as an individual card of a particular player or team. So at the end of the day, those cards are still numbered to 60. If I want, I'm going to use my boy Jack Steele because everyone knows how much I love Jack Steele, right? Jack, Jack Steele is there with his green parallel and there's 10 other St Kilda players that all have green parallels. So green parallels are easier to get but the Jack Steele itself is no easier to get than the Tim Membry high flyer or the, or the, um, the Nick Haynes high flyer for example because there's still the same amount of each card and that's why I think those cards are massively undervalued because at the end of the day Although there's a lot of subset collectors that are doing high flyers, the the, the massive, the the overwhelming amount of people that collect AFL cards are team collectors. So as a result, the same amount of people are going to want or, or close to the same amount of people are going to want the greens as they would for the high flyers. There's still only 60 of them. I think what's happened is those cards are undervalued because people didn't rush to buy them is what's happened there but ultimately you look 12 months down the track and it'll be just as hard to find a green parallel as it will be to find a high flyer of an individual player or team because they're numbered to the same amount but yeah there's there's different things at play in terms of the value um i believe that i actually do believe the prestige greens will catch up to the price of high flyers long term we won't see that in, you know, in real terms for a period of time. But once everything's depleted from the market and people need to still get them in their sets, old collectors, current collectors and collectors of the future, well, it's still they're still numbered to 60 ultimately. So how are you going to get it?
0: Yeah. Yeah, and I think we've talked about it many times too. The Brownlow vote getters from the Prestige series are insanely undervalued. Yep. For for a car that is of eighty. Um, you know, only a handful of people for each team. You know, some teams don't have any. Um, that is insanely undervalued. But anyway, that's a conversation for another time. Um, okay, so look, that obviously compare or makes a bit of sense for that. I got actually a little bit of a question today from um, uh, one of our viewers, Matt, um, who brought up the the special release highlight cards that select release every week and there is a for people that may or may not know select release a card on say a tuesday and it's the rising star nomination plus also the player that has done something fantastic over the weekend you have 24 hours i believe to order a card once that 24 hours has happened they shut it you can get no longer anymore if they sell 100 on that day they print 100 if they sell 500 they do 500 Explain to me for a card that is valued at $15 to buy, do they have the same increased value? Because the example that was given to me by Matt was that someone was asking for said card and I won't, you know, out anybody. And someone popped up in one of the threads and said, $60, you can have that card. Is it realistic to believe that a card has multiplied by 4X because it's released once a week? Um, yeah, well, okay.
1: Let me frame this for everyone. So people will look at it and say, a highlight card sells for $14.95 plus postage on any given week. Yep. Then all of a sudden, six months later, people come and they want the card for their collection because they're new collectors, whatever it may be. And they can only find one for 60 or $80 on the secondary market. People are losing their minds. Well, how can this be possible? Select only charges $15 for it. How can you charge more money for that card? Well, hold on a second. Select only sells a packet for $6.99 of dominance. So why is a card that comes out of a $6.99 packet can be charged $1,000 for it and everyone isn't complaining about it? Is it not the same thing? Is it ultimately not the same thing? The only difference is your highlight card isn't coming in a packet. It's coming, you know what you're buying when you get it. Yep. Whereas whereas with a packet of cards, you're not. So at the end of the day, it once again, everything in collectibles, doesn't matter if it's trading cards or whatever it is, anything that is a collectible card or anything that's a collectible that is a finite object that there's a limited amount of, it's always going to be based on supply and demand. That is real market forces. Those, those are the forces at play here. Um, the highlights... Something interesting about the highlights, and I notice uh, people, are, uh, you know, don't quite understand why they cut it off at twenty four hours. Why you can't just have them reprint it, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah now, it's good to yeah, touch on that. Yeah, so well, you know, highlights. I'll tell you the difference. Highlights are done on a digital printer, so select takes an order for a twenty four hour period because then they need to physically print the cards and turn them around in order to get them into the purchasers' hands. Um, the normal cards we buy packets of footy stars dominance whatever all these cards right those cards are on a offset production print which means they get printed in vast quantity and very large format printing if people have an idea in their mind that there's a machine and out comes a little piece of a a trading card size piece of cardboard and it's just like spits out of a a conveyor belt that's not how cards are produced i'm sorry to tell everyone Cards are produced in giant format sheets. Yeah, they are press, it's a pressing machine. Don't think of it like an inkjet printer you have at home. Think about it that every single image for every card is created on a plate and the plate is pressed into different types of dye and the dye is then pressed into the material or the stock, the cardboard, the thickened paper in this in this respect. That is printed, you might have a thousand cards or a hundred cards, whatever, 96 cards on a giant single sheet. Those cards then pass through a cutting machine and are all cut accordingly. That process can't be done overnight. It takes a very long period of time. And that's why the highlight cards don't have foil press numbers in them. And that's why the quality of highlight cards will never ever be the same quality as the proper series releases, yeah? That's what's going, That, that that's the difference between those two. Select limits the time frame you because they have to print it. You cannot also, you can't have them replaced. I ran into a really interesting situation recently where I'd ordered the Max King rising star card, rising star highlights, and they were stuck in transit. I thought they could be lost. They weren't at the point in time. They were just stuck in transit. I contacted select and said, I've got a real concern here that my Max King cards haven't arrived to me yet and i how do i replace them and select turned around to me and said you don't replace them they are irreplaceable cards because the card has printed on it how many have been produced and we don't have extras of those cards and they're not stamped in they're actually printed on every single card they're not replaceable if your mail is lost your highlight cards are gone if you have a number one there or the jumper number whatever it is well and they're lost in transit they're lost forever and can never be replaced whereas cards from an offset print run because they're cut in giant sheets they overrun every type of card so select holds an amount of every individual card which still says slash 350 slash 60 but it doesn't have the gold press number on it because the gold pressing is done is done locally um yeah, Bodhi, so exactly what Bodhi's saying, can you get greens replaced? Select's policy is that they don't advertise that they will replace cards, but they replace cards on a discretionary basis based on what has transpired, lost, stolen, pack damage, manufactured damage, damaged in transit, whatever it may be, and they make a determination. They do have the ability or the capability to replace numbered cards. They hold blank stock of numbered cards. Um, Sometimes replacement cards, I don't know how, but sometimes they make their way onto the market in different formats. And I've seen it over the years that you'll see people advertising cards that are not stamped with any form of number. They don't say player on it, which is for player edition. They don't say event, which are for rising star events, all that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, well, look, let's uh, let's keep away from that topic. But yeah, that, that that's certainly a valid point. And I guess the, the fact that yes, cards can be replaced, you know, we're certainly not telling everyone to go and email select this morning or tomorrow morning and say they want to replace every card they can get. I think it actually says on their website that they won't replace cards. But I think you used a key word there that it's discretionary. So um, certainly manufacturer's fault. I know there was um some issues with the silver showstoppers perhaps or one of the influentials or something like that where the actually the whole run came out and it was scratched or whatever they obviously replaced them so um manufacturing issues they'll replace but if you drop your card on the ground or the dog eats it good luck you're probably not getting another one yeah um all right well look obviously that was Cardboard School for another week, and um, obviously another short segment that we've been running here at Card Authority. Um, But, hey, this this is what everyone in the chat has come for. This is what we get bags and bags and bags. And, you know, in the old days when you watch TV, they'd say, send your entry to locked bag 65. We don't need a locked bag. We've got email folders full of people wanting to ask questions for AJ's mailbag.
1: Yes, sir. I'm excited for today's edition of uh, AJ's Mailbag, and the other AJ is in control here of this whole live stream of mechanism. So those little captions of your names and your questions coming up on the on the screen, he's in charge of that. So I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna let him fire something up here. Are we going something live, or are we gonna got, got one that uh, someone just asked us before the show?
0: Well, there was one that was emailed to us earlier, I believe, uh, from Lachlan. Do you want to take Lachlan's one first? And then I'll have a look at the comments and see if I can uh, pull out a couple of others. Yes, sir. All right. Lachlan, who many people know from the successful unicorn hunter, of the
1: Nick Natta. Oh, it, it is, okay. the, same. Yep. Oh, is it the same. I think it's the same Lachlan. It might be, it di- might be a different Lachlan. There are a couple, right. but I, I was assuming it's the same one it might be a different one. Um, but it has asked a really good question here. And the question is as follows. Will Matty Rao cards be valued similarly similarly to Dusty, to Dusty cards over the years? The kid is obviously going to be a gun, but how do you guys think the value will compare to Dusty cards if he moved to a Melbourne-based team? How much of an impact does the Suns Guernsey have on the value of the gun player's cards? Mm. Mm. It's a re- it's a really great question, and it's been a huge topic for debate. Um the Matt Rowell draft pick signature cards and the rookie cards have been a really interesting thing to see over the last couple of years. Uh oh, not a couple of years, couple of weeks since the release a couple of, weeks of, yeah, a couple of weeks since the release of Dominance. I was blindsided by it. Absolutely blindsided by those no, cards.
0: Well, I think I think when on one of our first shows, you sat here and told all the viewers it was gonna be a fifty dollar card. And I think at the time still a little bit wet behind the ears. I said, no, 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 I, I'm all in at $50. Well, what do you think a Matt Rowe is selling for at the moment?
1: Yeah, I know what Matt Rowe is selling for at the moment. They, they are comfortably going at the $200 mark at the moment <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and, and some of them even higher. And it, uh, it blows my mind. And I've had this conversation with a few people, including Gold Coast collectors and non-Gold Coast collectors. Um, it's a reflection of the shifting marketplace, I think. Um, so Gold Coast everyone knows Gold Coast is one of the lowest represented teams in terms of collectors Um, you you know in the past and no disrespect at all to Gold Coast cards or Gold Coast collectors but the saying you couldn't give the things away well I, I literally gave quite a few away there's no doubt about it there are Gold Coast collectors on board now but what's interesting is we're seeing a lot of player collectors now There's people moving into this hobby or changing their their desirability or the collection parameters, and not only are they collecting teams or what they have historically done, they're starting to collect individual players that they really like. And whether that is a Dustin Martin, a Gary Ablett, a Joel Selwood, a Sam Walsh-Patrick Cripps, or the new sensation, Maddie Rowell. And um, we're seeing that in full effect with this series. The other thing which I'm not sure if anyone's factored in as well is that there's a lot of guys who have moved into AFL recently from NBA for the first time and the way people collect NBA is very very different to AFL. People aren't so much full team master set collectors in NBA and a lot of it's to do with the attainability of cards and the fact is because there's so many one of ones and low numbered cards in NBA you can never real you can yeah you can't really master set it. Um but they're bringing their mentality across to AFL, whereby people are targeting rookies and players who they look at early in their career and are working on the basis that that person will become very successful throughout their career, and their cards will go up in demand and value over that period of time. Now, oh, look, I, I, the that row one has got me fully stumped at the moment, because I'm trying to ask myself in my mind, I'm rationalising Is it the dawn of a new era of what is going to happen with rookie cards or drafted cards in AFL? Or is this one that just goes against everything we know and it will be an individual outlier? Because I can tell you right now, or I'm not even going to tell you, I'll ask you, AJ, and it's not a rhetorical question, but I'm not sure that it has a tangible answer to it, is how does a Matt Rao card of a guy who played a few weeks of footy in 2020 sell for more money right now than a Chris Judd draft pick signature sells for when he's one of the most celebrated and greatest players in the history of AFL. Forget about the fact that that they've played for different teams, but at the end of the day, yeah, West Coast has the biggest membership base in the league, but it certainly doesn't have the biggest collector base. So it's it's an apples and oranges versus an apple and cantaloupe comparison here. But on the flip side, you're talking about a player who has already had all the success. And his card right now costs the same price as a guy who has not had proven success. It's very interesting.
0: Yeah, I think there's a, obviously there's the speculation factor um, that you touched on a little bit before about NBA, that obviously that sort of mentality is drifting across into AFL a little bit. Um, you know, Bodie just put another comment up before about saying it's a bit of hype as well the real hype train like you know afl fans and afl collectors can fall very guilty into the or very deeply into the trap of a guy plays a few weeks that are amazing and then suddenly they're going to be the the next best player in the world and i guess to pull it back a little bit to the literal question is will matt Rowell be worth the same as say a dusty well first of all dustin martin has achieved and, and i'm not being biased here um, Dustin Martin has achieved a ridiculous amount in football. You know what I mean? He's won multiple flags, Brown lows, Norm Smith's, all this sorts of stuff. Plus, he also has a huge collector base behind him, such as Richmond. Now, if Matt Rowe, I ask you this question, putting it back to you, if Matt Rowe was a rookie at Collingwood, what do you think his DPS signatures would be worth now? Would they be the same? Or would they be more with the known Collingwood or Tiger tax or whatever? one likes to talk about? Uh, yeah, so to really be
1: direct a direct answer to that from my perspective is if it was a m- more desirable team, if it was Pies and Tigers, well, it goes back to the fact that there would be a lot more people collecting the card. There's no doubt at the moment people are, there's people bulk collecting or collecting in multiples of Matt Rowell. No doubt about it, because that card's numbered to 175. And the only that's one of the few cards that hasn't had any form of dip at any point in time. Even the Pies ones have dipped off in price, and the Tigers ones have dipped in price. They may have regained that price or they might regain that price, but they dipped. Yeah. Matt Rowell has never dropped, which shows me that the demand for the card is massively outstripping the supply, numbered at 175. And on the basis, there's like three Gold Coast collectors. It means it's being bulked by a number of people, and it's going to hold that price high because what you're going to find is in a few weeks' time you literally will never ever find a Matt Rao card ever again unless someone who has one really tightly held starts trickling them back onto the market, and they're going to be bloody expensive. So yeah, but if it was if Matt Rao played for the Tigers or Pies, maybe that card wouldn't just be two hundred; it might be three hundred. So it might have opened market value at three hundred. And it would just keep going up because all the pies or all the Tigers collectors would need it for their master and team sets as
0: well. So I ask you this question, and this is this happens in NBA a little bit. Matt Rowe comes back next year after his shoulder. Game one, all the hype, $1.05 to win the the, North, uh, the Rising Star. Going to be a huge season, going to be as huge as Dusty whatever. <clears throat> Bang, does his knee first game. Out for another season. How does that affect the card price?
1: historically in AFL cards I don't think you know week to week performance even month on month form injury based performance all that sort of stuff has never been in my mind has never been one of the huge contributing factors if a player's a really great performer and then all of a sudden they have a career ending injury I don't think that actually impacts the price of their cards in AFL but it will start to moving forward as we moved more into the speculative and investment model of trading cards where you've got so many other people who aren't there to collect, they're there to speculate based on performance. And that's very much what goes on in NBA. Um, You know, a good example in NBA is the Zion Williamson thing. So here's a bloke who's being hailed as a generational superstar, potential generational superstar. They're saying he could be the next LeBron, the next Kobe, the next Michael Jordan. If he doesn't get injured. Now, the physical mass, the body mass, and his physical size would show that historically players at that size are prone to leg and knee pressure based knee injuries, basically. Yep. And in NBA, if a player gets a significant knee injury, it ultimately can define what will happen for the rest of their career. So the Zion thing's really interesting, where right now with Zion Williamson cards, the market has already factored in him being a potential superstar. His cards are changing hands based on evaluation of not necessarily his current performance, but his what, what he how he could perform in the future. So let's say you've got a Zion rookie card, there's a Zion rookie card and it's worth two thousand dollars versus every other rookie card that's worth between fifty dollars and five hundred dollars. but if Zion if Zion Williamson, Gets injured at training next week and a career debilitating injury, his cards will be worth a dollar. In AFL, I don't, we're not as volatile, and, and we're just, it's different. It's a different type of market. I think the the more we mature and the more people move in, the more the speculation around cards and therefore future performance and injury of players will will try, take a more significant role in determining value of cards. But yeah, it's not the same thing.
0: I don't know. I, I kind of disagree with that a little bit. I think if Dustin Martin broke both his legs and his head snapped off tomorrow and heaven forbid, please do not let that happen. But if that happened, his cards would not be devalued at all. They would still be, he's got the accolations, he's got the awards, all that kind of stuff. His cards would still be a premium. Again, I use the example of Matt Rao, He plays one game next year and snaps in half and never plays again. I can tell you right now, his cards are not holding $200.
1: That's right. Those cards will plummet in value because there's so much speculation on those cards. All of a sudden, all the people who have hoarded those cards with the intent to see the value go up so they can turn them over at a later point will probably want to just force their inventory straight onto the market. And if they can get $50 for it, they'll take 50 because ultimately they'll become worth only what a what a Gold Coast collector is prepared to pay for them. And if there's only three team gold team set collectors for Gold Coast, well, then you're going to have, a, you know, 100 172 spare Matt Rowles out there somewhere, you know?
0: Yep, yep, fair enough. All right. Um, well, I mean, that's been a huge addition. Oh, actually, sorry, I forgot. We've got another question. Now, I, I couldn't find this, and, you know, obviously this is all very technical here, but there was a question that came through that I did screenshot, so I'm just going to read it to you, Okay. Bodhi Brown messaged in earlier today, or earlier in the show, talk about the storage of cards. Example, folder versus top loader in a box, environment, temperature, right-sized one-touches, you get my drift. So perhaps you can even talk a little bit about how you store your cards or any advice you'd have for people that want to store their collections?
1: Yeah, all comes down to uh, personal preference. Oh, you know, you've got personal preference coupled with genuine protection of your cards, yeah? In my opinion, every card you intend to keep, if it's not being like, if it's not base cards being stored away in a box or a container or something somewhere and it's an insert card or something within your collection, well, the first thing is every card needs to have a sleeve. The only reason I wouldn't have a sleeve on it is if it's going into a one-touch. But from my perspective, I sleeve all my cards that are going into folders. Um, I do very particular things with the structure of my setup of how I have my collection set up. So for me, all my zero ones, all my jumper numbers and all my supremacy insert cards are in one-touches. They're, in, they're not sleeved, they're unsleeved in a one touch and then each one touch is in a one touch bag and they're all in drawers together because I don't have them on the display. Um, other things I do is really desirable signature cards that are very rare and hard to find. I also one touch them as well. So an example would be hall of fame redemption signatures, captain signatures, and also uh, the, the dominance, the Jack steel dominance card from this series of cards I have in one touches. Um, separate to that every signature card I have is in a top loader and I have those in top loader folders it's in a penny sleeve and in a top loader and the top loader is in a team bag to provide additional ultimate protection from the air and any any basically moisture in the air or anything like that that can get through the crack of a top loader I have them bagged and then I have them in top loader folders um, why not, why not sleeve in a one-touch? Uh, Bodie has just asked. Obviously, it's up on the screen for everyone to see. Well, I, 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 it's just not something I see the need to do. A lot of people say you should put cards in a sleeve into a one-touch. In my opinion, a one-touch isn't designed to have a card inside a sleeve put in it. I've got a couple of smaller size, undersized cards, like Herald Sun Signature cards, which are a bit smaller. So if I was to put them by themselves in the one-touch, they would float. They, they wouldn't stay stable. So with those ones, I've put them in a sleeve, but I've also had to cut down the size of the sleeve to make sure it fits within the gap of the one touch itself. So that, that's that, that's what I've done with those. But otherwise, some people say that cards will scratch in a one touch. It could be true. My experience is it's, it hasn't happened to any of my cards that I've seen. I don't have one card in a one touch that has been scratched from the one touch. Um, and I can definitively say that. And I literally have hundreds of cards in one, literally hundreds, hundreds and hundreds yeah. of cards in one touch, um, in one touches. So yeah, that, that's the case with that. And then <clears throat> my master set, as I was saying earlier, is in folders. So I have that sequenced year to year or series to series every year, sequenced out in a folder, running across ways in a page.
0: I think we're still online. I don't know what happened there. Something funny happened. Yeah, something happened, yeah. I guess that's what happens when you talk for an hour and a half. Um, i sorry. No, 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 that's all right. That's all right. Well, I think we're all good. I hope we can still see some comments in the, yeah. in the field. Um, all right, cool. So, look, obviously that is – and, look, we can certainly answer any questions people might have about any of this stuff um, – you know, about storage and things like that. But I thought that was a really good question. Um, look, obviously, you know, the other producers are giving us a little bit of a wind-up, but I think it's probably a good opportunity for us to move into everyone's favourite segment, which is unicorn hunting. Yes. So last week we obviously put out the call for... It was an ambitious call. It was for a double hunt, and that was for a Nathan Buckley and Wayne Campbell Captain signature from the authentic 2001 series now look it's um you know by no surprise it was a a very very tough task um you know we're still hoping that someone is going to help us with this we've actually got a little bit of an addition to that we um we we've had a couple of requests this week um, to add to that source for the authentic 2001. And that is for the Matty Primus Captain Signature from that series. So I think, I feel like it's going to get to a point where we're looking for basically every single Captain Sig from 2001. Um, they're obviously very hard to find. Obviously, if you know any collectors out there, I did hear a little bit of a rumour from from someone that they knew of a collector that did have the Buckley one that might be available. I'm still hunting down that lead. But if anyone has any of those captain signatures from Authentic 2001, Nathan Buckley, Wayne Campbell, and now Matty Primus, get in touch with us. But, AJ, I know what you're thinking. You need another unicorn, don't you? We need something else to hunt down, something that everyone out there in the community can have a little bit of a crack at finding. Because, look, to be fair, those authentic cards from 2001, they're big boy cards. They're, they're expensive. They're short print run. They're, they're, you know They're hard to find. So, look, we got reached out by a, a gentleman, Graham, who was actually involved in a previous unicorn hunt by default, and he is tracking down a Patrick Cripps, Platinum Brownlow Predictor from Footy Stars, 2018. So there is a gold predictor, which I think is of 270, and the platinum is only of 50. Now, they just don't seem to be around. You know, Crips didn't win the Brownlow that year, so it certainly isn't a high value card. You know, there. I haven't seen one. I did a bit of research today in the office and couldn't find one. Have you ever heard of or seen of a Patrick Cripps Platinum Brownlow Predictor from Footy Stars 2018?
1: Um, so for me personally, it's. I joined the hobby after the release of that series. I haven't actually ever seen the Patrick Cripps Platinum that, that I can possibly think of. But from my own experience, those Platinum Brownlow Predictors, because they're part of a series one product and the goal predictors for that matter as well, the the numbering isn't even reflective because a lot of the cards never see the light of day, whether the packet never got opened or a kid opened it, it got discarded, trashed, it's in a drawer somewhere in someone's toy room somewhere, whatever it may be. So I always work on the basis that only about actually about 30% of those cards are really in true circulation in terms of in the within the collector's network. So the attainability is at about 30%. So you, you could almost say those Patrick Cripps Brownlow predictor, the platinum Brownlow predictor from 2018, although it's numbered to 50, there's probably only about 15 out there. And those 15 may all be in team sets and will never leave those sets unless those sets get broken down one day. But we're soon going to find out about it. Now, what's really interesting is people... Don't necessarily undervalue the brownlow predictors. They're probably a bit underrated in terms of their rarity for the non-winning for the non-winning uh, predictors, which is every single one except the one individual that, that may end up winning it. Um, so they can be hard to find. And funnily enough, within my own team master set, I'm still missing a couple of the Platinums from 2018 for St Kilda. Yep which I haven't even seen them pop up. Like, it's not that I've seen them pop up and they've been too expensive. I literally just haven't even seen them pop up in my time collecting. Um, so it just shows you how hard those those cards are to find. And I think it it reinforces the numbering thing and, and the reality behind if you want to get master sets or team sets or even player sets done or subsets of particular cards, you, you really need to deal in the reality of there are now thousands of collectors out there there's thousands of people we know we you know some of our episodes have been doing two and a half thousand unique unique viewers so that's a reflection that the collector base is more than just a few hundred people on a facebook page half the people on ebay i don't recognize their names you got oscar trader which is a whole network of different people there's lots of people out there who are all competing for the same cards and sometimes i think we really take it for granted about the numbering so i think this is a great reflection that. It seems to me a Patrick Cripps Brownlow Predictor Platinum from 2018 numbered to 50 is as hard to find as the Nathan Buckley 2001 signature redemption captain signature. So, yep. yeah, numbering, that's where numbering really plays a huge part.
0: Yeah, and I think uh, we've had a few comments and I posted one of them. There's still a ton of stock sitting on pallets for 2018. So as you said, they're probably discarded or they're sitting in someone's drawers or there's some in collectors or they haven't even been open yet. So anyway, we're putting it out there. We've got a whole heap of unicorns that we're chasing at the moment. So Patrick Cripps, platinum Brownlow predictor 2018. Come on community. We can do it. We can do it. It's been a few weeks since we've landed a unicorn. It's been a bit quiet in the unicorn pen. So it's, it's, it's time to get another one, but look, we have had a massive show. I don't think we've ever, well, we've almost done two hours. AJ. Almost. two hours. Um, thank you for all our viewers, everyone that's put comments in today. We certainly appreciate it. Um, you know, we'll have this obviously up on all our normal platforms, Apple Music, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, you know, it'll be everywhere, SoundCloud. So everyone can go back and listen to AJ number two's, you know, advice on pricing tomorrow again. But, look, thanks for everyone's contribution. We'll certainly be back next week. AJ, you've been sensational. Sensational as always. Mate, I I
1: couldn't say anything nicer about you, sir, besides the fact that your initials, that's something to be desired.
0: (laughs) Thanks a lot, everyone. Have a good night and, um, yeah, see you next week.